This is Blacklisted Remarks. I'm Spencer Field. My name is Nick Stumphauser. And this is the first time I've ever put together an opening which actually worked. Every time I try it, it just fully falls on its face. Yeah, you're kind of, you stole my thunder. Oops. Welcome to Blacklisted Remarks. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> okay, so you can, you're about to get your thunder back. So Nick and I, as we normally do, were messaging last night about what we want to talk about this morning. Actually, I thought that was a significant improvement because normally we just sit down yeah. and decide what we want to talk about. But we actually put all of like 12 hours of forethought into this. So Nick's like, yeah, I got a really good one and then doesn't respond back for 15 minutes. So my response is, "Do are you really going to make me ask for this? And Nick is, says, well, there's a preamble, but I'm bowling right now. So we clearly see where Nick's priorities are. It's about rolling a piece of plastic down some wood to heat some more plastic instead of having an educational conversation with other people. But, you know, to each their own. Yeah. I said, let me know later. And so I show up at his house this morning and he's sleeping and he never let me know what it was. So we thought we'd do this big reveal, meaning for all four of you listening, what we're actually be talking about today. So Nick, you can now have your thunder back. Yeah. So Play Thor. Uh, today we are, uh, well, here's the preamble. Okay. Um, can this start with Once Upon a Time? Yeah. Once Upon a Time, two nights ago, I was uh, enjoying the company of an old high school friend who is a histor and historian. Mm -hmm. And this gentleman is uh, one of the most well-read individuals in history that I personally have ever known. And we began discussing uh, the concept of the Enlightenment and the Dark Ages and uh, how society has progressed and whether or not we're doing better or worse now than we did then. And, and he said this phrase that the, uh, the Dark Ages weren't that dark and the Enlightenment wasn't that light. And he said, this is my phrase. And so he, he coined this idea that, well, I, I should say he coined the phrase, but the idea that he had was uh, that in the Dark Ages, people were better off then than we are today. That people are le were less oppressed in a monarchy in the Dark Ages than the average American citizen is in a democracy today. Okay, so I think we're right off the bat, all two minutes into this, Spencer's going to break out his go-to on all conversations, which is definition, and ask what do we mean by good? And it sounds like you've alluded to that a little bit by saying um, it, it relates to the idea of personal freedom. So I'm that's that's partly where it, don't don't uh, unveil. Oh, the, sorry, I'm de-thundering again. The, the free car. I'm de-thundering again. You are, yeah. Sorry. So, so this is what he's what he's describing that the people were better off that they were, um, you know, happier and less oppressed in a monarchical society where there was a royal family who just said, this is how things are going to be and that's how things were. And that this illusion that we have become more free through democracy is actually uh, just that, it's, it's an illusion. And he said, and this is you know, one of the only pieces of data because it was, it was a conversation, not a debate, but one of the only pieces of data he brought up that, I, that just knocked my socks off is he said, the colonists that threw the tea into the um, Boston Harbor mm -hmm. were taxed. We have never been taxed that little. That the amount that they were taxed was nothing compared to what we're taxed today. Right. There was no income tax. There was no tax that ever came that close. 
And he says, how can you tell me that we are living in a freer society? And he starts to, you know, describe all these different things. And, but, but me being the philosopher that I was, I started, <laughs> started pushing him. I said, okay, well, what do you mean better? Because mm -hmm. they didn't know. Good question. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know, um, you know, in, in this monarchical society that the uh, earth revolved around the sun. They didn't know X, Y, and Z. They didn't understand the germ theory of disease. They didn't know these things that allowed them to have iPhones or whatever. And he said, essentially, that innovation can and will and does happen in a monarchical society. And so he was describing how, you know, look at the, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, look at, um, you know, the Sistine Chapel, look at Look at, uh, he said, Rome had running water. He said, I mean, you couldn't shut it off, but they had constantly running water. They had the largest. Um, aqueduct? Yeah, it was from aqueduct. But he said they had the largest sewage system mm -hmm. um, that anyone had ever had, ever in any civilization. He's like, these people weren't living in shit. They knew enough to, to, to thrive. And this was starting to shatter my idea that, that society is first progressing in freedom and second progressing in innovation and third progressing in knowledge. And he said that you can have all three of those progressions happen within a monarchy. And so, but I asked him, I said, uh, but what is the, like, what is the purpose of a, a life? And, and I, I didn't mean that in a tongue in cheek philosophical way. What is the purpose of life as a citizen in a monarchy? If it's not to, flex the muscle of free market capitalism and grow in wealth and grow in status and grow in power and grow in knowledge. If it's not to do that, what is the purpose? And he said, family. He said, it's basically just to be with your family. And I, he started to shatter this idea that I had that the purpose of a human life was to know as much as there could possibly be to know and to make a belief system based on all of these facts about the world that you have determined and to pursue and accrue wealth and understanding and power and status. And he's like, he painted this picture of basically somebody who was just happy to be alive and, and be okay to, to be simply okay. And it blew my mind. Hmm. It was a total paradigm shift. And so there's so much there that we could argue about whether or not monarchy is freer than democracy, all these things. But what I wanted to talk about sure. is this core idea of what does it mean to live a fulfilled life, specifically the value of truth in that life? Good question. You know, do, do is we... that all we're talking about today? Uh, <laughs> yeah, just I, that. <laughs> I would I would have sworn we were going to be talking about like is chicken tacos or beef tacos better, but it sounds like we're talking about the meaning of an individual life. Yeah, the the meaning of an individual life, and I'll I'll try and shape that more toward the specifics as we talk about it. But sure. first reaction, Spencer, what, you know, what do you think? So I think that there is some truth in what your uh, fellow human says. I think that there are ways in which we are less free today. Um, I think that the core principle of what this is the meaning of life. Um, and I even think back to the idea of, are we better off? Are we freer? Or have we innovated more? Do we live in better li living conditions? 
all of those things are fully and totally relative. I think when we're talking about the idea of the meaning of life is A, B, or C, there's not a universal claim that we can make there. Maybe for this person, um, what it means to live a fulfilled life is to live wholly with your family, to wake up every day and be okay. It's not about conquering knowledge or becoming the best informed person or discovering truth and abiding by it or you know making even the world as a as a whole, the meta world, a better place. Maybe it's about creating a family and living in unity um, with the community around you. And for some people, I think that is what they want their their purpose in life to be. And I think I'm okay with that. When I hear these ideas from you, maybe it's been because I've been exposed to them before, um, but my reaction is they're not revolutionary. And many people define their life by the success of their family or by feeling okay. What I think is a little unique in this situation is it sounds like this person's actually thought it through because I think yeah. most people who say like the meaning of life is to be happy and to have a good family life, which I think is what a lot of Americans would say if you ask them. Mm. I think a lot of Americans would say it's to be happy. And I think a lot of uh, parents especially would say it would be to you know be there for my kids or my wife or my husband or whatever that looks like. So I don't see those ideas as really revolutionary. What I do see unique is that this person um, didn't come there by default, just doesn't like wasn't asked on the street corner by somebody from Jimmy Fallon's TV show, like, what is the meaning of life? He said, like, thought about it and came to this recent conclusion. Well, he came to it through uh, history. So he was an uh, agnostic um, who hated going to churches, you know, race Catholic and was a constitutionalist and a distributist. Well, actually, he was he was just a uh, conservative, hardcore conservative. Sure. And through his vicious study of history, he became a constitutionalist, a distributist, a monarchist, and believes in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. He's a devout Roman Catholic, spends a lot of time on his Sunday driving a far distance to go to a Latin mass. Um and he says, I think it is absolutely 100% true. And I am far more at peace and content and happy. Uh, and, you know, he, he's like, I want to live. I, ideally, I would live in a monarchy of Catholics. He's hmm. like, that's how I, I would look at the, at the world as, you know, we'll call him Steve's ideal place to live. Sure. And so I asked him, I said, okay, but do you think Catholicism is true? Or mm -hmm. are you saying that it's like a great structure? He says, no, I also think it's true. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of like where this question came from me is like, it, that hunger that, you know, you and I specifically talk about a lot for just getting to the core of something and figuring out whether or not it's true. What's the value of that? And it sounds like he values it too, because he, he does think it's true, but he kind of, I don't know if he, he stops there or if he just has really Loctite arguments, you know, <laughs> or, or what, I'm not, I'm not sure, but. I think it's interesting to see you kind of process and react to this. Um, I think that there are, there are people that I have known who, who have hung on to religion. So I, my first reaction, I guess, is like, I fully believe him when he says like, my life is better now than it ever has been. I oh, feel totally. more. I feel more connected. I feel more wholesome. I feel that my life has more meaning to yeah. it. I feel that I have value. I would 100% agree with it, that given the information we have, that's 
almost certainly true. And then the next idea being like, is, is Catholicism true? And I think this is where we've had many conversations, but we'll have the same conversation maybe in brief this time, is the idea between qualitative truth and quantitative truth. Because I definitely could see where from a qualitative truth standpoint that this person says, I fully embrace this. I want to live in this type of world. This is where I feel at home. This is where I feel that goodness abides. I want to live in this place. And I feel that that is, that is true. And I want to move forward in that, in a qualitative truth standpoint. And then my question would be, where does that move from a quantitative standpoint? How far does that move into the quantitative field? Because for myself, there's definitely truths that I hold qualitatively true, like my go-to, I'm a bad Buddhist. Like there are lots of things I like about Buddhism and Taoism that I hold to be quantitatively true, but not qualitatively true. So if this fellow moves into the qualitative true standpoint, I can't say he's wrong. Um, I don't know that I have the knowledge to kind of to, to kibosh that. And if he wants to live in a in a monarchy within Catholicism, I'd say go for it. I think what we need to um, keep in mind here is that the unique individual will really respond to different scenarios. So I would absolutely not like to live in his world. Um, that's not a world that I want to abide in, but I think that there's ways for his world and my world to coexist. And I think if we can have a conversation about how we can make those diverse communities coexist together and how I don't have to be descriptive and pre I don't have to be prescriptive about my beliefs on him and he doesn't have to be prescriptive about his beliefs on me. Um, but then we're, I think we can get along. I think where sparks might start to fly is when he is when people, maybe not Steve quote unquote, step over what I view as a line and say, no, now you're wrong. You are quantitatively and qualitatively wrong. You need to repent. You need to come to see the world the way that I see it. This is quantitatively true and I will be aggressive to stomp out your version. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, th will that happen in a, in a Catholic monarchy? I, I don't know. And right now I don't really Think, trust history. Well, I was going to say, really trust history. I feel like when you look at a Catholic monarchy, there's, there's been very few examples of um, the monarchy going, you know, let's love and abide in peace and coexist. Uh, I, I, I don't know. There are a few, but I, not many. I really don't know because I, right now I'm not trusting the, the narrative of history that I've been given just, okay. just because of this. So let's, to me, it was revolutionary bombshell. Let's pause this conversation about whether or not the meaning of life is to live a, to live with your family, to be happy, to be okay, yeah. and move towards your understanding of the idea of history. So like, what has your idea of history been? How did this shape it? And where are you now? I thought that people were stupid, unenlightened, and oppressed, living in their own shit. Mm -hmm. And through the evolution of human thought, technology, and government, we have entered a place of innovation, intelligence, freedom, enlightenment. And that the, the, the mover of that was, you know, basically democracy and free market capitalism. Sure. Uh, and what Steve is, is saying is that that's not the case that we are more free or we were more free in a monarchy, 
uh, that the Enlightenment wasn't that light and people weren't living in shit. They had, you know, things to keep themselves alive and that these scientific facts that allowed for the progress of humanity would have been discovered and implemented from a monarchy that it's just merely time not the society that you live in okay that allows for those things to happen so you'd say the shift that happened for you is you had a belief structure in capitalism and democracy as this um empowering and binding force which has moved us from shit living uh head banging rock smashing uh monkeys right. to where we are today which you know maybe isn't as far as we think it is um and and that that force it and so now you're that force is being called into question saying right. was that the thing which actually moved us from a to b yeah or was it, it just time it, it, it i think it's just the human ingenuity will solve the problems before it regardless of i mean it, not regardless of the society because obviously if it's an oppressive society if you look at um you know islamic society in the middle east they're not going to let women read it's like you're not going to solve a whole lot of problems if like half of your population can't read and understand the world well they did come up with a number numeric system but you know details sure and and how many nobel prize winning physicists have come out of islam i haven't like, looked looked recently uh, it's zero okay. uh but the the point is is like with with regards to like this innovation like he's saying it you know it will happen in in a free society and we were more free in a monarchy than we are now so you know what is it to say that like you know we can't figure out germ theory of disease in a monarchy well i think that we can i think and, that and i actually can't remember if we did but he also pointed out like um vocabulary look at shakespeare's time you know living in a monarchy people had fifty thousand words under their belt he's like oh we couldn't read and write it's like no they couldn't write a check either they couldn't drive a car either but they didn't need to you know they had fifty thousand words to communicate with each other with and so this our concept of my concept of education was flipped on its head too what does it mean to be an educated person well, is it to know facts about the world or is it to be competent in the society that you're in all right great question i think the answer to that is both and it depends on how you want to be educated because like, there's many different knowledge. Sure. So like, but to, the point is, is like to say that, that people in Shakespeare time were apes, it, it would be false. You it, know? it would be. They, yeah. They, they were eloquent people. They were, they were verbally high in IQ, higher than the 5,000 words that we have under our belt as American society today. You know? Well, I think that there's a couple of ideas which are floating out here which need to be addressed so the first idea of human innovation moving forward regardless of a society yes true check the idea of human innovation working better in a free society yes probably true check um the idea that we were more free in a monarchy than in a capitalist society. So I think we're using some outgroup homogeneity here and taking all monarchies and putting them on this pedestal. So where there monarchies in the past which were maybe more free than we are as Americans today? Absolutely, no argument. Were the majority of monarchies in the past more free than we are today? I don't know that I would sign on to that. So I think we're taking all monarchies and saying, 
look look how good these are. And with the remaining monarchies that we have today um, in the Slavic countries or um, that block in, in Europe, we don't see massive individual freedoms. We don't see people, in my opinion, of what it means to live a good, wholesome life, living a goal good, wholesome life. So I think we need to take that example by example, actually, or case by case, because... Which is the argument that I'm trying to make, is that we shouldn't be referring to, like, monarchies as a whole. We might say, like, um, the Athenians and the Romans had this down pat, which is great, but that's, like, if you take individual monarchies, that makes up, like, 2% of historic monarchies. The reason I say is because Steve would argue that it would be maybe 99% of all monarchies. That, that created a society where the individual was was better off. I, I won't even say more free. I'll just say better off. Yeah, and then I'm just going to change my question from what is freedom to what is, what is better, better off. off. And and that's sort of what I was asking about, which goes back to the heart of, of this question that, yeah. that I brought up. is like, is it to gain wealth, learn facts about the world, and gain status? For some people, it is. Right. And so he, he, he seemed to disagree with that. that well, because that, like, he fundamentally holds a different perspective of what a good life means. And so that's what I wanted to talk about is like, how did he get to his place? And am I wrong? Or is there a wrong answer? No, I think it's the answer to that question. And why do you think there's not a wrong answer? Okay, so well, specifically, I'm saying no, I don't think you're wrong. Not that there's not a wrong answer. Okay. Just just so to why be don't fair. you think that I'm wrong? Okay. Uh, well, first, I putting the cards on the table, you and I hold relatively similar beliefs about the world. Not mm -hmm. exact, but they're in the same ballpark. Yeah. So to say that I think you're wrong would say, in part, that I'm wrong. So I have a clear um, bias in this conversation. So let's just call that out and put that on the table and not pretend like it's not there. I think that when I look at what the meaning of life is, if I want to be as honest with myself as I can, I would say there isn't one. There's not a, for somebody who came from a Protestant upbringing where there's some meta story and I'm part of a meta narrative and there's an actual bad and an actual good and I can be on one side or another and that my life has meaning over the course of civilizations and there's this bigger narrative that I'm participating in that matters in that type of meet big M meaning. I don't think that there is any. And so with and as Steve's coming from a place of Catholicism, which would disagree with that, he said he would say that there is a big M meaning. So I think that's the start and probably the most massive disagreement that we're going to have at fundamentally, we're starting at two opposite ends of the field. So I would disagree with him and we can go into why I disagree with him if we want to. And I think that then takes the next step. So step one is, is there meaning to life? And then step two is, is there a right meaning to life? So if you say there is a big meta narrative, then you have said there is a meaning to life. And by definition, some of those are right and some of those are wrong. And the question becomes finding which one is right and which one is wrong. So that might be, you know, is it religion? Is it not religion? If it is religion, which one? If it is one, how do I embody that the best? Um, I even think that oftentimes people come into being a Christian and they have like their one flavor of being a, a Christian. Yeah. And you're like, well, you're missing out that there are so many people who disagree with you on this. And they'd say you're living a wrong life and you say that they're living a wrong life. So what's the likelihood you actually found the right one? Maybe you did. Maybe you did. I, I don't know. Maybe you didn't. So that's the first step, the second step. And then on the flip side of that is when I say there is no meaning, the question becomes, 
what then? And I think you see like three options. So the first one is what I think most people do is they plug their ears. They say, no, 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 no. There's definitely a meeting. There's definitely a meeting. There's definitely a meeting. They have postcards and flashcards yeah. and tattooed on themselves. And it's, they can't cope without there not being a meeting. So as a coping mechanism, they choose to believe there's a meaning and they just slot in whatever they want to. Yeah. And I think that's where you get a lot of um, this like very vague spiritual practices we see in America of like, I use yeah. crystals and go to sound bowl healings. And I don't really have a full structure around that, but I just right. think that there's this bigger, better narrative out there. And so you can leave me hate mail, which you do anyways. But I would say <laughs> that oftentimes these people ha don't have this larger construct, but they can just function without there being a no meeting. So they slot one in. Yeah. I think that there are other people then who say there there is no meeting and some of those people just break and become psychotic. Um, and some of those people uh, were what I was a few years ago saying there is no meeting and that's it. Like we're just going to leave it there. So this is totally meaningless. And so those are the first two. And I think the third category is somebody saying, okay, let's be honest. There is no ultimate meaning. There's no big end meaning. But that doesn't mean that there's not small M meanings, which are relative to me, which are relative to my family and my culture, and that I get to choose what that relative small M meaning is then. And sure, it doesn't have a big M meaning, and I can't make claims that it does, and it's not near as powerful as a big M meaning, but I believe a small M meaning better aligns with the truth. Yeah. And when I'm looking at why the truth is important uh, in a big M meaning it's because the truth is the big M meaning those things are overlapped. But when I'm saying that there is no meaning part of this meaning, I'm kind of superimposing onto the world, understanding that it doesn't really exist, but I want it to anyways, I'm living in a 2d world, but I have on 3d glasses because I want to live in a 3d world yeah. is that truth matters. And so I'm going to go chase that because I think that it matters, but it doesn't actually interesting and holding those two ideas in tension and i think everything you just said is still hopelessly meaningless yes and it, it is not big m meaning and the hurdle for me to get from what the camp that you and i are in right now i would ascribe to that that sure. trifecta of things you have to to grapple with and hold in tension to where um steve is at is this concept that that you know chris hitchens has laid this out really really well and you know i might be adding on to it a bit but that for two hundred thousand years you know homo sapiens have been dying in childbirth or from rotting teeth by the age of 30 or mauled by a you know mountain lion or a saber-toothed tiger or killing each other over their land and uh slowly we evolved uh, and we're still starving and dying and being in misery for hundred thousand years. And then we had civilizations and we had all these different religions and, and you have to believe that God was standing up in heaven with his arms folded until 2000 years ago when he sent down his son to be slaughtered for us. And he wrote a book. Well, if you want to believe in the Protestant narrative, then yes. And, and well, no, I'm talking about the Catholic. Oh, narrative. sure. If you and, and, and you know, and he wrote a book, and you're supposed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Yeah, a little weird. And 
you know, the, the ceremony is, is best said in, in Latin and, yeah. and you have to sing these prayers and go to mass on this day. Like, I think from, from like an objective perspective, that leap from all possibilities and a look at the universe to this one specific set of propositions being true to me is such an extraordinary leap yeah that i just i can't do it which is why i'm he gave me a Yet. list of books and authors and everything sure. i am gonna tear through them. i'm so excited to uh to hear his arguments we started talking about biblical historicity and joseph of arimathea and whether jesus rose from the dead and all these different things sure. and, so i would agree with you that's a massive swing and there's probably um, for most people, there's some propellant behind that swing. Yeah. They, they just don't do it for shits and giggles. They do it because their life sucks and they want something to be better, or they're really hungry for truth and they find this to be most resonant. Uh, and I think that for some people in a qualitative sense, it is true. And trying to convince them otherwise isn't what's best for them as humans. I There's one last nagging thought I have in my head when it comes to this because it seems like we have kind of three conversations going during this podcast. One being, what is the meaning of life? Uh, which is kind of a theme I feel through all of our podcasts. Yeah. The second idea is, um, is capitalism better than a monarchy is another kind of idea. And the, the third idea is how is it that we discover what truth is and how do we abide within that? Um, yeah. It seems like kind of, which is also an ongoing conversation, which we seem to have. But taking a, a minute and looking at that second idea, the one other thing which hasn't left my mind yet is that when we're describing these these societies with um, saying that you know we had uh, vocabularies of 50,000 words, and I think that those are true for the upper echelon of our society, but until the last several hundred years, something like 98% of humans were lived in an agrarian society, and they were living in a massive city with Shakespeare. They were living out in the woods or out in a farm and they were farming and were subsistence farmers or were part of a slavery plantation so i think when we're talking about this idea of walking through the streets of rome with the best irrigation system and a magical sewer system absolutely rome was a phenomenal place no argument about it but if you took the entire population of rome and you said which what percentage of the entire nation at its peak lived in these beautiful cities and what percentage of them lived in some form of squalor, I would venture to guess that it's something that no more than 20% of these people had a vocabulary north of $50,000 words or thousand dollar words. Boy, that's the $64,000 question. Um, <laughs> uh, had a large vocabulary or enjoyed fine arts and that most of them, if you looked at the average man lived in some form of squalor I don't know that. And I don't know that that's a historical fact. I, I would have to dig into that and do that research. One of the things that Steve said is that um, that serfdom was a symbiotic relationship. It was a willful symbiotic relationship. In from, some, no, that's only true in, in some environments. I mean, if we're talking about slavery, it's like, I'm not saying it didn't exist, but, sure. but, I'm, but I'm talking about like a citizen of a state and oh i think he even mentioned slavery in this too uh somebody somebody mentioned oh yeah, yeah yeah he said um in a monarchy 
yeah, this is this was hysterical. Uh, he said in a monarchy, the king says no more slavery. There's no more slavery. America tries to say no more slavery. We have a civil war and like 90 percent of our men die. You know, it's like you think voting is really that effective. Like you think like going to war for something is really that effective. He's like, try a monarchy where they just snap their fingers. And it is. OK, like, well, then the flip side of that is if the king decides that women should no longer read, he can snap his fingers and women no longer get to read. And so. This is exactly what this is a really fascinating part of it, too, which is uh, I asked him, I said, what is the selection mechanism? And I was using um, evolutionary biology language, but I was saying in a capitalist democratic society, the selection mechanism is voting and you're mm -hmm. and, and if competence is the end goal, then you have a, a group of people who, who present themselves of which you are able to select via voting and whatever laws are also involved in that process sure, and whatever funding went into sure, deciding your funding, opinion. Yeah. yeah and into my eyes i was like wow this is you know very logical it's the most free that we've come up with sure. in order to select because you lived in a republic the, your entire life exactly and and i said like but what's the selection mechanism for the monarchy like who puts him in what if he's shitty what if he like snaps his fingers and says slavery is okay? You know, that, that, that's, there's no protection against that. There's no selection mechanism that filters out all of the incompetence. Sure. And he said, well, you know, usually the monarchy would come from somebody who is a, a feudal Lord. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was like, okay, well, well, clearly in order for them to gain status and wealth and property and all these things, they had to be more competent in some ways or more oppressive in some ways in order to gain that area to, to in, instantiate their own Royal family. And after that, I, you know, I was wondering specifically, like, are there traits? And this is something else we were talking about. Are there traits about some people that are better than others? And if that's the case, do they have more of a quote unquote right to rule than somebody else? Like if they made it, did they make it because they were better? And those are two separate ideas, but specifically with regards to this selection mechanism, he said, historically speaking, if you really look at history, there has not been a monarch that hasn't acted in the best interest of his people. Mm. And I know that's a, a bold claim, a but, very bold but he claim. says over time, like, you know, their kids know seven different languages they know how to run a country like they, they go through all this education and preparation and stuff and then it's like a seamless transition and whatnot like and he was contrasting so then how this does with, he explain things like china or north korea which are modern day monarchies those are tyrannical dictatorships sure which are could be seen as a version of a monarchy yeah i don't know i'll have to ask him um it because so i I will be willing to admit that my understanding of history is much more limited than Steve's. And oh, I took, boy. Yeah. So. I was just sitting at the table of a teacher. <laughs> two nights Which ago. is the, a very nice place to be sitting. Yes. Um, it's much more limited than Steve. So I, I won't try to say to, to go tit for tat, but I will say from a broad principle perspective, I think that there are these, what I will term magical monarchies that were these places of freedom and human flourishing and um, family support and education and progressiveness and innovation, like those existed. And I will not argue that they did not exist because I think that would be factually wrong. But I think that if we look at 
all monarchies as a whole and not just these big shining ones on the hill that we don't see them being effective as a whole and we see that there are sometimes great kings which do great things for the people or great leaders in whatever form you want that to take but oftentimes just as much if not more often there are kings or leaders or whatever monarch which does terrible things for the people and we can't kick that and i think that if you like my go-to example would be if you look at the history of china as a whole that there were some periods in the history of the chinese nation where flourishing abounded education was triumphed uh family structure was supported and continued you know it was this glowing metropolis of goodness mm-hmm. but that probably made up less than 10% of the time and the rest of the time it was infighting and backstabbing and diseases and kings focusing on their own soul agendas while letting their people literally starve in the streets see i don't know that that's true i know that's true with communism i know that's true with socialism i know that's true with uh, leninism i i know that's true with marxism but i i don't know that that's necessarily true well then we might have monarchy a fair little research project. Yeah, to do. I think we should both research this and maybe instead of another full podcast, we could just make Facebook statuses to, <laughs> to our listeners and let them know, like, you know, this is what we've concluded. But um, to to the listeners who I'm just going to regurgitate the book recommendations that I got. Sure. Um, and I think I, that will be kind of our ending idea. for Sure. That, that's, you know, I have not read them yet, but uh, Characters of the Re- Reformation, I think that's by Hilaire Belloc. There's a guy named Charles Dawson. Um, and Joseph Pierce. Those are just three names that I guess I'm going to jump into and we'll see where that takes me. Um, but, but yeah, I'm curious. I, I want to hear from people touching on both. We should have asked them in this format. Then. Have asked in this format, uh, at the end of this podcast or in now. the podcast in general. Yeah. Uh, you know, what do they think the meaning or purpose of a, of a citizen's life. I don't mean like this grandiose sure. philosophical idea, just like as a citizen in a society, what's your purpose? I think that's the same question, just a narrowed down version. Yeah. And that you have to answer what is the meaning of life first, and then you can answer what the role of a citizen is. True. Do you want to close this out too? Sure. This has been a thunderless episode for Nick. So. I don't think that this has been a thunderless <laughs> episode. Like your opening revelations were like there were at least dark stormy clouds, if not full on claps of thunder. True. Maybe. maybe. And the, our glisters can't comment on the lightning, which is happening. Like our <laughs> lights flash. So there definitely was lightning. <laughs> You've been listening to blacklisted remarks. I'm Spencer field, your host. I am Nick Stumphauser. We're signing off until next time.